Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Ryan Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring work day. Conyers Magazine Serial, the book club bestseller, the prize-winning Broadway play, William Wyler brings to the screen the story of a family in its most desperate hours, filled with the warmth, the emotion, the stirring courage you found in his great Academy Award-winning productions, The Best Years of Our Lives, and Mrs. Miniver, with this great all-star cast. Shut up, Mr. Hilliard. Mystery called you. You can't turn this on us. I got my guts good and full of you, Mr. Hilliard. Guys like you, smart-eyed, respectable suckers. You're afraid, aren't you? Yes, son. I'm afraid. And I'm not ashamed of it. Sometimes it's better to be afraid. Bard, you can't put off a showdown. Nobody wants a showdown any more than I do. But we can't get the poor Slavs family massacred. Glenn, it can't go on. First the old man on the truck, then the school teacher. Now the guy out here. Somebody's gonna get wise. Oh, darling, we're not saved if anything happens to you. I, I will let you go. Ellie, that's the way it is, that's all. Well, you do as I say. Our job is to help you and get away from here. Take your men, your guns, your lights and get away. There's been a murder in my county. The papers are beginning to scream. So and what do I care? My family's in that house over there. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie The Desperate Hours from 1955. The studio, Paramount Pictures, the release date October 5th, 1955. The running time, 113 minutes, and it was in black and white. Leonard Maltin from his classic movie guide gives it 3.5 out of 4 stars. His quick little synopsis is, extremely well-acted account of escaped convicts terrorizing a family household. From Joseph Hayes' novel and a Broadwood play inspired by actual events. It was remade in 1990 with Mickey Rourke. So I'm a huge fan of Humphrey Bogart, and this is one of my favorite later era films for him. And I don't recall when I first saw the film, but it was likely on television when I was a teenager. And this would be the second to last film of Bogart's career before his death in 1957. Okay, let's get into the main cast. Of course, you have Humphrey Bogart, who plays Glenn Griffin. Now, I covered Bogart's early career in the Maltese Falcon episode, and after that film, Bogart was one of the top actors in Hollywood and starred in his most well-known roles throughout the 1940s and 50s. Films like Casablanca, To Have and Have Not, The Big Sleep, The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, Key Largo, The African Queen, and Sabrina, all of which I owned, so get ready for years and years of Bogart episodes. 
Frederick March plays Dan Hilliard. Now, like Bogart, March was one of the most well-known and respected actors of his generation. His career began in the silent era during the 1920s, and he won two Oscars for Best Actor. He won for the 1931 version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, and then he won for The Best Years of Our Lives in 1946. His best-known films, in addition to the two I just mentioned, prior to The Desperate Hours include Les Miserables from 1935, Anna Karina, The Original Star is Born from 1937, which is actually not a musical, Death of a Salesman in 1951, and Executive Suite. The director, William Wyler. Now, with Bogart and March in your film, you have to have the best of the best, and to also have one of the top directors as well in Wyler, it was no wonder this film was so well done. Now, I covered his career up until Roman Holiday on that episode, and The Desperate Hours was his next film after he did Roman Holiday. And he would go on to direct Friendly Persuasion in 1956, The Big Country in 1958, and arguably, and amazing after such a long career, his most well-known film came in 1959, And that was with Charlton Heston in the film Ben-Hur. Okay, let's get into the making of the film. Now, as Malton mentioned in his review, the film is based on a 1954 novel of the same title. A Broadway adaptation debuted a year later, and Paul Newman played the lead. For the film version, Bogart was a bigger star at the time on film, which is why he got the part over Newman. Now, Bogart felt the role of Glenn Griffin was essentially a grown-up version of the Duke Manatee character he played almost 20 years earlier in The Petrified Forest with Betty Davis. For the role of Dan Hilliard, Spencer Tracy was the original choice as both Bogart and Tracy were close friends. However, both actors wanted top billing, and then Tracy withdrew from the film. Frederick March was then cast. Now, the 1954 novel was actually inspired by real events which occurred in 1952 in which a Pennsylvanian family named the Hills were held hostage at their home for 19 hours. The Hills, after the incident, were unharmed but didn't want publicity and tried to keep their lives private from the media. However, Life magazine published an article based on the novel. And that novel took liberties and claimed the pictures included in the feature were actual photos from the home of the family. Now, Mrs. Hill later had a nervous breakdown due to the Life article, and Mr. Hill sued Time Magazine, the main publisher for Life, for libel due to not fact-checking various portions of the article which claimed to be fact. The Hill family won an initial suit for $30,000 in damages, but Time Magazine appealed and the case went to the Supreme Court, where future President Richard Nixon argued the case for the Hill family. Now, the argument for Time was they felt the story was newsworthy, therefore privacy laws were waived, even for private citizens as they were now considered public figures after the hostage situation. Now, the argument by Nixon was that a fictionalized account of the event should not be considered newsworthy and therefore the Hill's privacy should remain intact. The Supreme Court initially sided with the Hills, 6-3. However, this was an unpublished decision which was later uncovered in a 1985 book called The Unpublished Opinions of the Warren Court. The actual decision, which came in 1967, actually sided with Time Inc., 5-4. Basically, the court ruled that Time was not reckless in the publishing of their fictionalized story of the Hill hostage situation. It's amazing. Okay, let's get into the film. So the opening credits begin with a shot going down the street of a quiet suburban neighborhood. Now, this is the same neighborhood and house that was used in the TV series Leave it to Beaver. And ironically, the last episode we just did was The Burbs, which used the same universal lot. However, the film is supposed to take place in Indianapolis, which is based on the novel and the play. We then meet the Hilliard family. Dan, the father, who is Frederick March. Ellie, the mother, Martha Scott. The teen daughter is Cindy, played by Mary Murphy. 
and their young son, Ralphie, played by Richard Eyre, who is probably like eight or nine years old and wants to be called Ralph. He doesn't want to be called Ralphie because he's old enough to be called his birth name, according to Ralph. (laughs) It's a pretty idyllic life. They live in a nice home in a safe neighborhood. However, in a case of foreshadowing, after the kids leave for school and Dan goes to work, Ellie turns on the radio to hear this news report. The early morning escape was cleverly masterminded by Glenn Griffin. He, his younger brother Hal, and another convict named Kobish brutally overpowered a guard and fled without arousing suspicion. Griffin made headlines here four years ago when during a violent gun battle he deliberately shot a policeman, then surrendered. While making the arrest, an enraged deputy sheriff named Jesse Bard slashed his gun across Griffin's face, breaking his jaw. Griffin swore to someday get even with Bard. We then cut to the police station where we are introduced to the deputy sheriff Jesse Bard, played by Arthur Kennedy who is disturbed, to say the least, that Glenn Griffin has escaped prison with his brother Hal and another degenerate named Sam Kobish. Bard is the one that put Glenn away. Even though now it's an FBI case, Bard is worried that Griffin will return to Indianapolis for revenge. Now, Bard's fears come true as Glenn, Humphrey Bogart, and Hal, Dewey Martin, and Sam Kobish, played by Robert Milton, they're scoping out a quiet neighborhood to hide out in. Of course, they pick... The Hilliard's home, mostly because Griffin sees a bike in the front yard, and parents will be less likely to do something like call the police if their kids are in danger of being taken by force. So Ellie is the housewife, and she's tidying up the home when she gets a visitor at the door. Sorry to bother you, ma'am, but it looks like I lost my way. Would you kindly direct me to the Bowden Dairy? Well, there are no dairies close by. Take it easy, lady. Easy, I said, easy. You scream and the kid will come home and find you in a pool of blood. That's better. Kobish, upstairs. Where's the phone? That the only one? It's ditching upstairs. All clear back here. Here's a big car in the garage. The garage lock's broken. Key to the car, lady. The keys? Lady, when I speak, you snap and snap fast. The keys to the car. Top of the refrigerator, I think. Get him, Hal. Check the car. Yeah. Take the car. Take anything. Just stick with me, lady. Nobody home but her. Smart gal. Bedrooms. Three. And two bathrooms. <laughs> what a layout. Yeah. And you drink in eight years. Where's the liquor? Yeah, make yourself sick on a good cigar instead. Get in there and keep an eye peeled out that side. It's a kind of library. Improve your mind. <laughs> Crude, ain't he? Well, let's see the rest of the house. car's ready in the driveway facing out. It's low on gas. Stick on that door. Oh, Hal. What? Hal, lady, you and me got some business. Come here. Bard meets with the local police and the FBI detective who understands that Bard has the best grasp on what Glenn might do from past experiences. Normally, the FBI has the lead on cases like this, but in this particular case, 
Bard will have the lead in capturing Glenn and the gang. So checkpoints and radio alerts are set up, while Hal listens to the radio for news updates. Glenn scours the house for cash, and Kobish is upstairs playing with Ralphie's toys. Kobish is basically an overgrown child and pretty much an imbecile. The problem with Kobish, though, is he's volatile, and he's also a large man to boot, but this will come into play later in the film. Glenn instructs Ellie to make a long-distance call to Glenn's girlfriend. At least that's what I think she is, because she's basically a gangster's mall. Whom do you want me to call? <laughs> I always go for a dame with guts. That's whom you're going to call, a little lady with real guts. Long distance, no fancy double talk and nobody gets hurt. Mr. James is calling Mrs. James, Atlantic 63389. No, 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 we don't write nothing down. Atlantic 63389, Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh, PA. Operator, I want to place a person-to-person call to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Mrs. James. Mr. James is calling. Uh, Atlantic 6. 3389. 3389. How do you, doll? No talk now. Listen. Get here as fast as you can. Indianapolis? Yeah. Any trouble, call on the phone. Number's, uh, Broad Ripple, 8493. Address is 6459 North Preston. Got it? Yeah. Okay, doll. I'll look for you around midnight. I'll be careful, see? I'll see. Dan and Cindy arrive home later that afternoon to find a strange car parked in the garage. They get a big surprise when they enter the house, as Ellie is being held at gunpoint by Glenn. Being real sensible, mister. Ellie. I'm all right, Dan. Where's Ralphie? Not home yet. Stop pointing that gun at her. Glenn, I left the garage door open. Shut it. The house is crawling with them. What are you doing here, Griffin? They're looking all over five states for you. They ain't looking here, Pop. What do you want? Take it easy, Pop. Why here? Why my house? Your break. I like the location. I like a house with a bike outside. Love people with kids. They don't take no chances. You get it now, Hilliard? You can get brave just about any time you feel like it. Any one of you. You might even get away with it. But that ain't saying what's going to happen to the others. How long? You ain't dumb, are you, Pop? How long? About midnight, maybe sooner. See, Pop, we can play this together. Then nobody loses. Why midnight? I got a friend bringing me some dough. As soon as she gets here, we hightail it out. What if the police come? What if they find you here? What then? It wouldn't be pretty. If that happens, you folks get it first. Get turning in. Walk. Look, if you let me explain you to pull him. Pull anything, hit it. I'll let you watch me kick the kid's face in. It's all right, Ralphie. What's going on? Who are they? It's all right, Ralph. You listen to your old man, kid. He knows where it's buttered. How come you're so late? 
I don't have to tell you nothing. Oh, Ralphie, I've been so worried. Scout meeting, remember? Mrs. It don't pay to forget around here tonight, Griffin. What if I could get you the same amount of money you're waiting for now, before midnight? Hey, I don't you might be a big shot in your office, but I've seen your bank book, 800 lousy bucks. Let's face facts, Pop. You're a punk. Well, I could raise more. I... Don't get your mind in uproar, Pop. Listen to him anyway, Clint. The guy's using his brain. I'll use yours. Helen's on her way here now. Yeah, but that ain't it. He's got other business in this town. Shut up. What do me and the kid care? Who busted your jaw? Bust yours if you don't shut up. Why should we stick out? Shut up, I tell you. Just as you can get some copper knocked off. Go spill your stinking gut somewhere else. Who got you here? Who done it? Now get out in the back. Using his brain, is he, Hal? Look at him. Clickety, clickety, click. I can see it perking. Don't ever try to come in between, you smart-eyed slob. We're sticking. Sweetie, take the kid upstairs and see you don't get out. I don't want him hollering out any windows, either. She's a honey, ain't she, Hal? Four years, Papa. Don't cost nothing to look. Oh, by the way, you, uh, you got a gun in the house? Just stay looking at me and answer the question. No. No gun. That's right, you ain't. Show him, Hal. You know, for a minute there, I thought you was going to lie to me. I always like doing business with a man I can trust. Now, get out in the kitchen and cook that chicken I seen in the icebox. Do it yourself. My wife's not your servant. I always wanted me a servant. I don't mind, Dan. Well, I do. You stay here, Ellie. Listen, idiot. You ain't calling a tune. I got my guts full of you shiny shoe, down your nose wise guys with white handkerchiefs in their pockets. Next time, I'll wipe them on you. Now get out there and cook! I'll get you another one, Ralphie. You will let him get away with this? I'll take that, kid. No, it's mine. Give me it, I said. Oh, this. Grow up. Ralphie, sit tight, Pop. Hand it over. You brat. Dad, Dad! <laughs> Ain't gonna be like this, see? Not like this. Ain't gonna be like this. Like this. Dad, what's happened? Get back to the kitchen and take the kid with you. Dad. Get back. Go ahead, Ellie. I'm all right. Hal, put that away. So we learn a few things from that last scene. Even though Dan is willing to raise money for Glenn and the guys, Kobish let it slip that the return to Indianapolis is a revenge plot on Glenn's part to get even with the sheriff. Hal and Kobish don't care about Glenn's past beef with the sheriff. They'd rather escape with cash. This sort of difference could be used to the Hilliard's advantage later. Also, as we heard with Kobish, his overgrown child mentality came into play as he body-slammed Ralphie <laughs> after he wouldn't give the toy plane to Kobish. In the meantime, the police are on the tail of Glenn's girl, which they believe will take him straight to the hideout. Back at the house, both Glenn and Kobish are absolute slobs as they order Ellie and Cindy around as servants. Hal is the only one somewhat respectful, though since he's associated with the other two, Cindy is cold to him. 
Another complication is Cindy's boyfriend, Chuck, who calls the house, and, and before Cindy can tell him that she can't see him that night, he decides to invite himself over anyway. Now, Chuck is played by Gig Young. In the meantime, Glenn has a job for Dan. Okay, Spitfire, when Sherlock Holmes stops out front, you duck out. Hey, did I got a job for you. Ellie, go upstairs with Rafi. Lock the door. Don't open it until I tell you to. Gas is low in that fancy car of yours. Get some, fill her up, and check the battery and oil. Hey, Griffin, are you crazy? The kid and the missus stay. As soon as he gets out of that door, what do you think he's going to do? Tell you, Cobish, nothing. Pop here's a smart cookie. Clickety, clickety, click. I can hear them wheels going around. He's saying to himself, that Griffin means business. He ain't afraid to pull a trigger. And he's thinking, is it worthwhile calling the cops when they only got a few hours to go? But if they track you down here, it wouldn't be our doing. Maybe. Maybe not. I'd never know. But you couldn't blame us. I can do anything I want. This is all you've got to remember, Pop. You too, sis. Any red lights show up out front. Them coppers start setting up machine guns, throwing tear gas through the windows. You know who's going to get it first? Not you. Them. That's all you've got to keep on your mind. Hey, mister, get me some liquor. No. No liquor. This time he's right, Kobish. You letting this joker give the orders? Nobody gives me orders. Make it bourbon, he did bonded. Bring back some late edition papers. Would you like a scrapbook, too? Wait upstairs until Chuck comes. Pop, when you get back, park the car heading out. Nice family you got here. So while Dan is getting gas, Chuck arrives to pick up Cindy. Before he can get to the door, she greets him nervously and they go on their date. Glenn wants to avoid having Chuck in the house, and Cindy knows if he, she tries anything, her mom and her brother would be in danger. Dan returns with the evening paper and two bottles of booze. Now, Glenn is suspicious that Dan might be trying to get Kobish plastered and smashes one of the bottles. Cindy returns a few hours later from her date with Chuck. When she enters the house, she encounters a very drunk Kobish who has ideas of possibly forcing her, himself on Cindy. Before he can, Hal steps in and pulls a gun on him and tells him to back off. Kobish then drunkenly leaves the house and is chased down by Glenn, who knocks him out in the driveway. Dan consents that Hal isn't a hardened criminal like Glenn and Kobish and tries to reason with him. Cindy then faints, but she is acting, and while Hal tries to assist her, she bites his hand and Dan tackles Hal and throws him out the front door. They lock the doors and Dan tries to call the police, but he hangs up when he realizes that Glenn has Ralphie outside, because Ralphie tried to sneak out the window to get help during the melee. I tried anyway. Up your mother, son. Jumped off the roof. Brave kid you got there, he did. Brave family. Going on midnight and you couldn't wait. You couldn't wait! You ain't learned yet who's running this show, have you, Hidden? Hands off, Griffin. So Gwen ends up pistol whipping Dan and he knocks him out. Back at the sheriff's station, Bart ends up getting screwed by another state's police department as the instructions to not arrest Glenn's girlfriend was ignored and she noticed a police tail and ditched her car, which means she is no longer being followed to where Glenn is hiding out. She then calls Glenn to tell him what her plans are. Hello. I have a collect call for Mr. 
Mr. James, from Mrs. James. Put her on. Will you accept the charges? Yeah, put her, put her on. Get him inside. Inside and shut the door. Helen. Yeah? Is this you? Yeah, what's up? I ran into some trouble in Columbus. I can't come on and I'm heading for Louisville instead. You know where. Yeah. Now listen. That stuff you're carrying, put it in a plain envelope and take down the address I'm going to give you. Okay? Yeah. As soon as I get it, we'll make tracks, doll. You watch out, see? I'll see. Close them curtains. What if they trace that call? Called Circleville, Ohio. Here it is. Twenty-four miles south of Columbus. You think them dumb cops are gonna start tracing phone calls from a jerk town like Circleville? Yeah, but what if we get trapped in here? We'd be better off anywhere else. It can't be nowhere else. All that dough in this town. Now that copper put on ice for good. The next morning at breakfast, the Hilliards finally snap, but Glenn has a surprise in store that keeps them in line. How much longer, Griffin? Oh no, Pop. Got any way to talk to your guest? How much longer? Till I get a certain envelope in the mail. Meanwhile, everything goes on just like before, see? Normal. You and the Spitfire go to work. Junior here gets a break. He misses a day at school. Won't hurt you, kid. Mr. Few myself. And look at you. Yeah, you're looking. Pass you on the streets, you look right through both of us. Well, you're seeing us now, sis. How? The morning paper. Get your kicks young, kid. Al, the paper. You're gonna be late for the office, ain't it? Why do you want to go on torturing my husband? You take pleasure in torturing people, don't you? Well, I'm getting attacked from all sides this morning. Lady, I take pleasure in looking out for my own skin. No, no, it's some sort of game with you. you cruel and human. Filthy. Ellie. You getting tough. All right, Pop, get moving. I'm not leaving this house today. Okay, Pop. You stay and we stay. Because we ain't gonna beat it out of here till we get that dough. And that dough's in the letter addressed to you at your office. We don't want no federal men tracing anything up to our front door now, do we, Pop? You'll go. You'll go. I'm all right now, Dan. I'll stay upstairs with Ralphie. Cindy, get your coat. Hey, Ralphie! Shake a leg! Ralphie's staying home today, Buck. He hurt his leg. He did? The lucky stiff. Tony's gonna miss the big game. A plus, Pop. You heard me, Ralph, and that's what you're going to do. Stay home and with your mother all day. Well, don't be so hard on a kid. He saved my neck last night. It's all right, Dan. We'll be all right. <laughs> What's so funny? I don't 
don't see nothing so funny. You should break your neck laughing. I laugh when I feel like it, and you ain't got nothing to say about it. All right? All right, Hal? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Get the dough and come back, both of you. No mistake, see? That neck on your head. You got a story ready? It wouldn't take much of a slip today. Just a little one. And you're gonna wish you never come back through this door. Griffin, I never understood before how a mind like yours works. But I do now. You're gonna be late for that time. I know exactly how you feel because I've got the same thing in me. I want to kill you. Pop, you're a regular comedian. If anything goes wrong here, any harm comes to any one of us, I'll do it. I'll kill you, so help me God. You understand that? Yeah, I got you. We understand each other all the way. Tough old bird you married, did you? No. No, I didn't. While Dan drives to work, he tells Cindy not to come home that evening no matter what. Back at the house, Ellie pays the garbage man his monthly fee, but Glenn gets nervous about the garbage man seeing their car in the garage and instructs Kobish to tail the garbage man by hopping in the back of his truck. Kobish ends up moving to the front seat and pulls a gun on the poor garbage man and tells him to drive out of town. Dan arrives at the post office and checks the morning mail, but does not find the envelope from Glenn's girl. The next postal arrival at the office is in the afternoon, and he instructs his secretary to give him the delivery immediately, unopened, when it arrives. Dan then decides to write an anonymous note to the police and goes to a nearby hotel to have the bellboy deliver it personally. We then return to the garbage man's truck, where, sensing his impending doom, decides to intentionally crash the truck on an empty dirt road and then jump out. While trying to flee, Kobish slowly gets out of the crashed truck and shoots the garbage man in the back, which kills him. Kobish gets to a phone and calls Dan at his office and instructs him to pick him up. In the meantime, the police have been called to investigate the crash scene and the dead body of the garbage man. Sheriff Bard notices the bullets of the same type that Glenn used. Though the other detectives believe Bard is just obsessed with Griffin and he thinks he tries to tie every crime back to Griffin. In any case, Bart instructs the detectives to find out what neighborhood route the garbage man had that day for potential leads. Dan picks up Kobish and drives him back to the house. However, they get a surprise when Ralphie's teacher has stopped by to pick up Ralphie's homework assignment for the day. Dan tries to cover her, seeing Kobish enter the house by saying, oh, he had a few drinks with them and brought him back home, implying that Dan's drunk at that moment. The teacher, of course, feels awkward and takes the essay from Ralphie. However, before she leaves, Dan asks to see the assignment and realizes that Ralphie tried to give the teacher a note about them being held captive. Dan kind of plays up the drunk angle and acts belligerent with the teacher, and she quickly leaves without the essay. Dan, before he went to pick up Kobish, had stopped at the bank to withdraw cash and act like it was the envelope of cash from Glenn's girl. What Dan didn't realize is that cash was sent that morning and wouldn't arrive until that night. Dan thought if they had the money, they'd leave, but to no avail. Hal thinks that they should take the money and leave and is getting frustrated with Glenn. And then Kobish won't give back the gun that Glenn gave him, and things are getting kind of testy for the gang. Clickety-clickety-click, Pop. Don't work it overtime. Griffin, 
When you leave here, if that time ever comes... Watch your manners. You know I'm going to pick up the phone and call the police. Oh, now, Pop, you wouldn't do a thing like that. What'll you do about it? Rip it out. There's one next door. What's on your mind? I know what you're planning, Griffin. You're not taking anyone along. Say, that's not a bad idea. I never thought of that. You thought of it. All the way. I'll tell you what, Pop. You give us a fair shake, we'll give you a fair shake. As soon as the dough gets here, we'll take you with us. Just you. Nothing happens, we ain't followed. You get out and walk home. That's a deal, Griffin. Sure, Pop. Deal's a deal. In the meantime, don't get ulcers. All right, there's about 30 minutes left, and it's a thrilling ending, as you might imagine. Now, both Bogart and March are in top form in this film, and as I stated at the beginning of the episode, this is basically a sequel to The Petrified Forest 20 years later, and Bogart is perfect in the villain role. However, after the movie was previewed, Humphrey Bogart told director William Wyler, I think I'm too old to play gangsters. I guess we're our own worst critics, I suppose, but he's great. All right, a few fun facts. While an official remake was released in 1990, as I mentioned with Mickey Rourke, the 1994 dark comedy The Ref with Dennis Leary and Kevin Spacey is basically a similar plot with comedy infused. During the short outdoor shot of the front lawn, you hear the sounds of children playing. One of the children shouts something like, I missed you. This exact same sound clip is used repeatedly 18 years later in the final exterior scenes of The Exorcist from 1973. All right, as we like to do, we have our resident classic movie fan, Samantha, back to discuss The Desperate Hours. She's never seen this film, and so we get her first take on seeing this great classic film. And I will be back next week to talk about yet another random movie from my DVD collection. Okay, we're back with Samantha. Welcome back, Samantha. Hello. All right, so I got so I, these last few movies that you've been on, they've been they've been new to you, which is great because I like to get a fresh take from you. And so the movie is yeah. the, the Desperate Hours. And before we talk about the movie, are you a fan of Bogart? And if you are, what are some of your favorite films <laughs> from him? I don't know, honestly. <laughs> I mean, you could take this the wrong way, but I've never understood the hype. Mm-hmm around bogart personally okay now why do you Um, think that i i I do understand how he's i guess just developed such a reputation and i think at the time maybe he was special like he had been doing film for so long and he was in such a variety of movies Mm -hmm. and he's a very you know powerful strong actor but i've always found it interesting how revered he is well, he's kind yeah. of a presence on screen he's kind of like cagney and edward g robinson and and those type of guys where yeah you're i think you you kind of hit it like that era is totally different than today i don't think mm-hmm. his type of uh his type of acting i don't know if it would have played out well um as well today as it did back then um but that's yeah, interesting like, yeah and Maybe because I've all I've seemed to watch more of his movies where he's been older. Mm, um, okay. I've always thought he's kind of you know a little gruff and uh, you know he looks like he drinks a lot, <laughs> which he did. <laughs> so I don't know. He's a bit of a rough, a rough guy. But you can't argue that 
his performances are very striking and captivating. Um, and I can't say I've watched a movie he's been in and I've thought like, oh, that was horrible. Like, no, he's a great actor. But yeah, I, I just don't. I've never really been, you know, oh, my God, bogey. <laughs> he doesn't appeal to you love him. like uh, Cary Grant or Gregory Peck or someone like that. Yeah, like that's mean to say, but he he's not, no, that's in fair. my opinion, he's not an attractive, as attractive as them. So. No, you know what? That's totally valid because that's um, and that that's like any actor or actress. I think yeah. that's totally fair. Absolutely. So you appreciate his art, but it's not someone you you connect with. Uh, completely and that's totally fair yeah and I don't know like I feel like when he's he's more of like perhaps more of an everyman Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. character like he's not that he doesn't appear on the screen and it's like wow you know Hollywood his teeth you know are shining that type of (laughs) no power but it's more you know understated yeah, which is in which is actually in some ways very cool, but that back then someone like him could become so like a yeah. superstar worldwide. Because today, I don't think it would it would it would happen. Yeah, and just how prevalent he was for decades. And yeah. uh, the other thing too, I've always thought was, I think from a female perspective, is he always worked with very young and very pretty actresses. Right. Um, especially when he was older. And I thought, hmm, interesting. I think, you know, that happens nowadays, too. But I've, sure. I always kind of thought that was weird from like a, a young woman's perspective. I I never liked that that type of casting. So. But then again, I mean, it kind of mirrored real life because Lauren Bacall had to be 20, 25 years younger than him, too. Yeah. Yeah. But like I said, I've 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 liked all of his performances, and I've rewatched several movies he's been in. But it's just yeah, mixed bag. <laughs> Have you seen his early gangster films like The Petrified Forest or High Sierra? Like probably in the late '30s, early '40s. I don't believe so. Like I could have seen bits and pieces. Like I'm one of those people that would watch, you know, stuff on TCM. Like okay. here and there all the time, you know, whatever's on, I'll watch part of a movie. Um, but I don't think I ever really keyed into those. Because this really, and it's kind of fits how you described him as kind of that gruff character. He's kind of perfect for this role because it really does go back to those early gangster roles before he became kind of like known for being a private eye, you know, like in or uh-huh. kind of a suave gentleman like he was in, in Casablanca. So yeah, I think yeah. he fit the role perfectly. Like I couldn't imagine him playing the Frederick March character. Like he had totally. to play this guy in, no, in Desperate Yeah, I, I thought I thought that same exact thing, like mm-hmm. how he played the character in this movie. It felt like someone who had done had this life for a long time and you know he'd been in prison for a few years. Yeah. In and out. And now he got out and this was, you know, he really fit into that role. And I thought it was cool how, yeah, he was, I think, 50 in his late 50s when this was filmed. Um, yeah. And it it was perfect. So watching it for the first time, what did you like and what did you dislike about it? And did you did you read up on it before you um, before you saw it or did you just go right into it uh, based on my recommendation? So I did not do any previous like prior research. Okay. Um, I just 
watched it from the beginning. I knew, I think when I like looked it up to rent it, I saw that it was about, you know, some guys that escaped from prison and, um, you know, on the run, whatever. But mm-hmm. I didn't really expect the that the whole movie was going to be a hostage situation. Right. Um, so I thought that was kind of not weird. Um, that's not the right word I'm thinking of, but I just wasn't expecting the whole movie really to take place in this house. Sure. Um, I thought it was going to be more of like a, you know, on the lamb type um, storyline. Okay. Like um, they'd be moving to, from place yeah, to place. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like going from here to there, you know, running from the cops. And also, cause we were introduced to that. Um, was he a detective or police officer? Um, yes. We were introduced to him at the beginning. So I thought maybe there would be, you know, more of a showdown um, between them at the end. Oh, with so, the deputy sheriff. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who knew Bogart's character? I thought right. there might have been more to it there. So, yeah, I think it that had its pros and cons because I did feel like the movie was a little like claustrophobic and long. Yeah, it is long. Like, it's almost two yeah. hours long. Yep. Because, that you know, they were just, it was hostage situation the whole time. We did have some people, you know, come in and out. And um, the daughter's boyfriend, there was a plot with him, kind of. Right. Um, but it really was just this really, it ended up being a lot um, darker and more scary than I was expecting. Um, because they were just this hostage it was this hostage scenario that became increasingly um violent yep and yeah so it it went in a direction i wasn't expecting and i think i liked how it really dialed into that but it did go too long Mm -hmm. in my opinion well it was based on a novel first and then adapted into a play and Mm -hmm. that makes perfect sense because as a play if you're only in one really central location that makes sense and so i'm glad you brought that up so did it feel almost like it would be today like a tv episode oh almost Mm -hmm. almost because what's funny is I was trying to, I was, as it was, as I was watching it, I was like, this reminds me of a movie of a new movie I just watched. Oh, okay. Um, and it was just released this year. Um, it's called No Sudden Move. Okay. And um, it starts out with a, and it's based in the fifties too. So hmm. I'm like, I'm wondering if there was some inspiration pulled oh, from this movie because it was mm-hmm. very, very close. Um, where it this no sudden move it starts with some criminals go to a house parents two kids and they hold them hostage Mm. um but this new movie it has a much uh, more drawn out plot with like gangsters and Mm -hmm. all sorts of things but um it was very close to this so yeah um going back to your question this, I think, because it was just the one concept, yeah, it did feel more kind of like a an an episode of something. Like I could have seen more more happening. I'm glad you brought up No Sudden Move. I haven't heard of it, but I'm looking it up right now. So it's directed by Steven Soderbergh, and he's the yeah. one that directed the the kind of the reboots of uh, Ocean's Eleven with uh, George mm-hmm. Clooney. 
uh, he's a big fan of of classic Hollywood. So I bet you he was inspired by some of those classic, you know, uh, films and probably Desperate Hours as well. Yeah, it was eerie how close it was. Hmm. That's good. That's I, interesting. I had I just watched this movie maybe two months ago, right when it came out. Um, okay. And definitely there are much, uh, strong differences, but just the setting and the kind of feeling where of this hostage scenario, it was, it was so close. <laughs> well, I think, and I think it's interesting that the newer movie went back in time to, to do this because just as a, as a story writer, I think it's so much easier to create plot points around, uh, stuff that's not made today because today technology can solve a lot of these um issues that you get into you know oh, whether it yeah. be a cell phone or yeah. tracking and and it's actually a lot more fun way back when uh to try to get yeah. out of a situation you know because i was there was a scene um in the desperate hours where mm -hmm. um i think is it someone makes a phone call and they operate or tries calling the operator. Right. And then the operator is kind of just left hanging. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, if you call 911 and you hang up or it's silent, like they will follow up. Right. It automatically traces. Yeah. They automatically traces so, you. Yeah. So nowadays that w the cops and someone would have been there much sooner. Absolutely. For so that, various reasons. <laughs> so, and that brings up a, a good, so in the desperate hours, is there anything you would have changed or were you thinking about a way to get out of the situation? If you happen to be in the same situation as the family, like let's say you were oh, the God. daughter, what would you have done? Would you have done anything differently or were you even thinking about that? Well, so maybe I'm just optimistic, but <laughs> I'm the type of person that whenever I watch these types of movies, I'm like, just go to the police. <laughs> like, I don't care if they threaten, right. they say this, 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 and that. Like, if you are out of that house, just go <laughs> to the police. <laughs> because the criminals typically are not, you know, they're not rocket scientists. No. So if you can just get out and tell someone or go to the police station, call the police from your office, potentially. Mm -hmm. Right. Like, it's not like they had the whole house rigged with bombs or something. That you like, know of. <laughs> <laughs> they had a gun. Yeah. So, yeah. But that's just me. Um, and you would pay yeah. the ransom immediately. Or you wouldn't pay the ransom. If, they, if there was a ransom. Oh, if there was a ransom, well, I'm always like, get the police involved. <laughs> <laughs> so no matter what, you want the FBI or the... I want the, everyone yeah. in, <laughs> give them what they want, just do it. Uh -huh. Like, I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to reason. <laughs> just do it. <laughs> Good to know. See, the, the tips from Samantha, that's what we're... That's, uh, yeah. You'd be a great hostage negotiator, too. Oh, maybe. Okay. <laughs> Just give them what they want. <laughs> so, other than that, were there any other things that you would have uh, you would have tweaked or changed in in the plot of the film? I don't know. One thing I did actually catch that I liked mm -hmm. was I don't. I think this was done on purpose, but I really liked how the 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 beginning move the, the beginning scene with the family and the final scene tied in. Okay. Um, because. Yeah, at the beginning, you're introduced to the 
the kids and they're yes. like, you know, I'm too old for you, dad. Mm-hmm. Like, leave me alone. Da, da, da. <laughs> and then at the end, like the family all comes together. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they appreciate the father, which I guess was some sort of thing that was required. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I don't, I think I, I really liked, I think the family aspect to it. I thought there was just enough. There was a maybe a lot of, uh, this is also just another personal gripe of mine is I get irritated in these types of movies with like the, the like frantic mom character. Oh yeah. That's and true. there was, a, yeah. And like at the beginning, you know, when she answers the door and you know, she's like, Oh, <laughs> and I'm like, yes, I'm sure that's how I would react in that situation too. But mm-hmm. yeah, I felt like the mom was kind of just, yeah, that panicked trope throughout the whole thing. And then, you know, dad had to be the hero and it is very Broadway too, like the overacting. Of, of yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad so you brought I'm, up the, the kid. Yeah. Cause yeah, I remember in the beginning he wanted to be called Ralph, not Ralphie. Uh-huh. Because, you know, he's eight or nine now. <laughs> so. Yeah. Oh, and the other trope that gets to me too, is like the little kid who mm-hmm. always like causes a problem. Yes. And yep. like, that's the whole thing. Cause we think he's going to get abducted and right. Ralphie just, just, hide under the bed or something <laughs> yeah know. just just don't do anything so that brings up a point so the other kind of trope is when you have these gang of people of kidnappers you have the leader which is bogart you uh-huh. usually have a younger guy that's kind of reasonable and that in this yeah. case he, he's the one that's kind of interested in the daughter too because they're about the same age and then yeah. you have the super creepy guy that's kind of the wild card <laughs> yeah. how did you feel about the super creepy guy but <laughs> i guess he's needed yeah, so I thought definitely that was a a trope for sure that that stood out to me as well and mm-hmm. you know they they exist to kind of build up the main guy. Sure. Um and you couldn't have three like leading bad guys it would never work. Right. Um but yeah, it was it was almost like comic relief in a way at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But then yeah, the with Kovich, Kovich, yeah, mm-hmm. Kovich, yeah, he ended up becoming like very, like a brutal. Yes. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was odd. I think the the feeling was a bit odd there. Well, yeah, he became more brutal as he drank, which they were. Yeah. Kind of oh, that's true. But he was yeah. almost childlike in the beginning because he was taking like the kids' toys. Yeah. And stuff. Yeah. So it was kind of it was kind of fascinating. Yeah, different. And I think that just shows kind of how the plot progressed in a way. Like, at the beginning, you thought, okay, these are just some, like, idiots who are taking this family hostage. They're going to get their money by midnight and then leave. Mm -hmm. Um, But, like, as that didn't happen, like, yeah, the family started getting more frantic. They started getting more aggressive. They end up killing the garbage guy or whatever. And right, right. It kind of all spun out of control. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that poor garbage guy. So yeah. how did you feel about Frederick March? Because he, he obviously the two main stars here are Bogart and Frederick March. Had you seen mm-hmm. his earlier work at all? Because by this time, he's older as well. I, I mean, he didn't really stand out to me as someone I'd recognize. Like, I'm sure I've seen him around, but... Okay. Yeah, I can't speak to any of his previous films. 
Got it. He was in the original Stars Born, not the one with Judy Garland, but the one. Okay. It's the original, which wasn't even a musical. And uh, he was in Les Miserables. He played Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman. I guess he was in the original version of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. So yeah, he'd been around. He definitely had been around for almost a, you know two decades at that point. Yeah. So very veteran actors coming head to head. Yeah, definitely. And what's yeah. interesting for you is the director is William Wyler, and he of course directed Roman Holiday, which we we talked about not too long. Yeah, ago. yeah. Oh, yeah. He's you know really prolific. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know you can tell like yeah, this movie it, it definitely like as you've said it has that kind of like theater mm-hmm. vibe to it, but it still does have that it felt like a good like Hollywood thriller at the same time. Right. Right. So. And obviously kind of, yeah. it's being remade today. So, <laughs> Cause I'm glad you brought like, that up. In certain aspects, potentially I would love to, I haven't like looked into it, but I'd really like to see if anyone's mentioned any similarities or to similar movies. <laughs> well, I think it's real smart for directors trying to, if you're trying to target younger folks, like you could go back to the fifties and I guarantee with the exception of you, uh, nobody's going to notice <laughs> like seeing like if they were trying to redo films from the, you know, the forties and the fifties. Yeah. yeah I know. So would you recommend this or was this, this one that you would uh, not revisit? No, I would, I would recommend it, but I think just, you have to watch it and understand kind of that it, it will drag on a bit. Mm-hmm. So I think I went in and I thought it was going to be more of like a fast paced, suspenseful, yeah, uh, crime movie um, mm-hmm. with lots of twists and turns. But it did. It was kind of like a slow burn. Right. Um, and the suspense there, it, the suspense was there, but part of me enjoyed it. And then part of me was kind of like, you know, get to the get to the final showdown or, you know, that type uh-huh. of thing. So yeah, kind of mixed, mixed feelings. I think that's a perfect description. I think it's a sl- the slow burn as you put, I think today, well, who knows today? Cause they draw out everything, but uh, I, yeah, if I it was 90, <laughs> 90 minutes might've been a perfect, uh, if it, I bet you if this had been a B picture, it would have been 90 minutes, but I think because they had Bogart and March in it, they felt they could mm-hmm. probably get away with it being a little bit longer and people would go along with it. And, and that's valid too. Yeah, yeah, I think there were lots of dramatic moments. Oh yeah, for them, <laughs> for them to, to show off. Show. <laughs> yes. Well, as always, thank you so much, Samantha, and thank you for being, you know, being willing to uh, to check out movies for the first time and talk about them. Yeah, it's great. Thanks. Come hang out and chill with Brian A. Davis and the Bad Beat Wednesdays, 11 p.m. Eastern, right here on ThatMetalStation.com.